0: Being a good manager is a little bit like being an athlete. You have to take it seriously. It's not something you fall into. It has to be something that is a goal for you. My goal is to build teams that feel like they're the 99th percentile. And how does that, what does that look like? People become highly skilled. People work on things that make a lot of sense to them and for their career. People who, other people want to poach. That's success for me as a manager.
1: Welcome to the Super Managers Podcast, where we interview leaders from all walks of life to tease out the habits, thought patterns, learnings, and experiences that help them be extraordinary at the fine craft of management. Our goal is to bring you the lessons and the insights so that you don't have to learn through your own mistakes, but so that you can shortcut your way to being a great leader. This podcast is brought to you by Fellow, a software platform that helps managers and their teams collaborate on meeting agendas, track action items, and turn chaotic meetings into productive work sessions. Check it out at www.fellow.app. Hey, fellow managers and leaders, I'm Aiden, and I'm the CEO of fellow.app. Today, I'm very excited to introduce you to Aji way who is a product leader, and he has worked at a lot of very well-known companies, including being a product leader at companies like Atlassian, Calendly, Twitter, and today he's the chief product officer at Typeform. So this was a very wide-ranging discussion, but one of the things that I wanted to get Aji's views on was the thing that everybody's been talking about these days, which is generative AI, the use of chat GPT, and how AI is going to impact our products, our people, our teams, our company, humanity, and everything in between. And so we talk about this concept starting from just a philosophical level, but one of the things that was really interesting, and I really think that product leaders have to do this very well, is they have to lead through influence, and they have to be able to come into an organization and lead change. And I was very curious about how Aji goes about getting his team to change the way that they do things. How are they going to get everybody to really think about AI? How are they going to make them change the way that they operate, incorporating AI and in new technologies? And so we use a couple of examples to dive into this. Obviously, we talk about AI, but we also talk about another simplistic example. For example, we would all agree that it's good to listen to customer calls. If you're in business, staying close to the customer is a good idea. And it's also a good idea for everybody on your team, especially if you're in the product org, to listen to customer calls and to spend time with your customers. And so how do you actually go about doing that? Everybody agrees that it's a good idea, but it's actually harder than you would think to get everybody to do that on an ongoing basis. So we talk about a variety of things that Aji does, including using writing as a superpower to get people to make the change, but also some frameworks around how people have to think about it. So one of the things Aji talks about is using 20% of your time with customers. And that's a very tall order because that's one out of five days, but it really goes far in showing the team what Aji cares about and what building products in organizations that he leads are all about. So lots of different things we dive into, but also the concept of what Aji thinks about the types of managers he wants to promote within his organizations. And for him, it's not enough that they are excellent at what they do, but also they have to be great shepherds of the talent in that organization. Organizations work really hard to bring in the right talent, to nurture them, to train them, to get them to work very well together. And people who are in leadership functions, really, it's their responsibility also to take care of that talent. And so being a good shepherd of people is another concept that he looks through. So this is a very wide-ranging discussion. And before we dive in, I did want to say thank you to everybody who's been giving us five-star reviews on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts. We really appreciate it. And of course, if you haven't done it yet, it takes two seconds. And if you're doing that as I speak, then thank you so much. Really appreciate that you do that. It really helps us promote the show. And of course, the Supermanager Slack workspace is live and kicking. Lots of great people, lots of people talking about management. Great way to meet other passionate listeners of the show. So if you want to join, just send us an email to supermanagers@fellow.app and we will let you in. And with that said, and without further ado, please welcome Aji Udezwe on this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. Aji, welcome to the show. Thank you, Aiden. Yeah, very excited to have a chat with you. We had a pretty interesting pre-discussion as, as we were about to hit records. I'm excited to get into some of that with the audience today, but you have an extensive leadership career. You're a product leader. You've been a product leader at companies like Atlassian, Calendly, Twitter, and today you're the chief product officer at Typeform. And one thing that actually, fun fact, I don't know if you knew this about me, but once upon a time, this was a long, you know, five, six years ago now, but I used to work at SurveyMonkey, so.
0: Oh, very cool.
1: Yeah. So that's a fun fact. I had this company in the online survey space and then sold it to SurveyMonkey and, you know, was there for a few years. So I'm sure there's a lot that we could riff on there. But look, you've been doing this for a long time as a product leader. And one of our favorite questions is for guests on the show is, do you remember when you first started managing or leading a team? What were some of those early mistakes? Is there anything that comes to mind that maybe you do less of today?
0: Yeah. So I became a, a manager and a lead when my manager went on maternity leave and she looked around and she's like, who's, who can uh, be in my stead? And she, I was a, her logical choice. So I became a lead in her absence. And then after she came back, I stayed a lead. Uh, so that was how I was off to the races and becoming a manager. And uh, as you can imagine, I was at Microsoft at the time, uh, I made a lot of Many mistakes, basically. And I I think the most interesting mistake I made was my manager had a bunch of, you know, we were a team, just like most software teams that had dependencies, right? And these dependencies, some of them were not in Redmond, where we were, you know, somewhere in the Bay Area. And she had set up some arrangements, some deals or contracts with these teams. But when she left, some of those contracts became brittle one of the first mistakes I made was that I didn't realize how to manage transitions. So they became so brittle that we couldn't deliver. And then I had to take the team all the way down to sort of reestablish those relationships and those uh, contracts with those teams because we needed them to be able to ship anything. And what that taught me was when you're going through points of transition, you should slow down and you should reassert and check all the bolts and things if they're still working. So I didn't know that at the time, but I've never made that mistake again.
1: You know, that's super interesting, especially because you have been, you know, the senior product leader at a bunch of very well-recognized names, but you've come in, you know, these are companies that were established and they had a product and they had a culture. And so, and then you came in as to lead that. I mean, these are all transitions. So I'm curious, like just relating back to this mistake, what are the first things that you do when you when you do get into product org as it relates to this contracts and be, being brittle, like on that topic?
0: Well, first of all, I think I've actually done more than just going to places with uh, established cultures and so on and so forth. Like I built a company 2013 to 2015. So, you know, just like you with Fellow. And actually at Microsoft, I st- even though it was a big company, when I was there, many teams function like startups. And so I actually had the opportunity to create many firsts, you know, the first ad funded Windows app, the first services team, not services team, but services, application services team that was a combination of consumer and search. And I helped build some of the answers infrastructure at the time and helped define what it looked like. And so Microsoft afforded me actually a lot of firsts inside a very, fairly large organization, which helped me shape things that look like startups inside that organization. But yes, I have come into places like Atlassian and Twitter, which had people and infrastructure and try to shape it to be better. And that's maybe the last seven years of my life. So I think getting up to speed is a little bit like, you know, one of your priorities is get up to speed quickly. I have this little competition with myself. Usually when you take an executive job like this, it takes six months to really feel like you're cooking with gas. And I try to always beat my speed record. Like, can I do it in three months? Can I do it in four? That kind of thing. And so the first thing you want to do is understanding, right? Being a good teammate to your first team, Focus on the first things to do. Now, one of the first things I try to do is really understand the customers. I try to isolate the people in the organization who understand customers really well. And then I try to spend more time with them than everyone else. And that's what sort I've of increased my customer intuition about who we're serving, the strategy we need to serve them, and whether that's good or not
1: got it so in terms of like the just going back to to the lesson that that you you were talking about so when when you say first team this is the executive team and so is part of that a understanding like what kind of promises were made cross team and and making sure that those are almost still intact is that a way that you think about it
0: it's almost like uh, archaeology it's you, sort of all encompassing you have to get to know the people and get them to trust you and you you do that not just by talking but by doing you have to understand the history of that team and w- what has gone wrong or right up to the point you got there you have to sort of understand the ways of working the ways they work and ask yourself if it's good or bad and see if you can help improve it if it's not what you think it should be in terms of your sense of what good looks like without pissing everyone off by the way and so your first team is really, really important. And I think basically if you have to pick one, word is trust? You have to generate trust amongst them and really understand where everyone is coming from so that you can be effective.
1: And when you say you have to build trust quickly, what is something that people can think about doing in order to establish that? I mean, you talked about, you know, beating your own record and instead of six months, three months. Is there anything that you figured out that helps establish trust more quickly?
0: I think time is the base of human social trust first of all like it's hard to generate trust with people you don't spend a lot of time with so you should spend some time so whether it's executive meetings or one-on-ones and also paying attention to what you talk about in those meetings is really really important one of the things i do is like i set up one-on-ones very lavish one-on-ones with people my first team when i first get there and i keep doing that you know maybe for two months or a quarter until you feel like there's a vibe going, right? Like you understand where they're coming from. You get to learn who they are, where they live, their children, whatever. Tell, you know, when people start to tell you stories that have nothing to do with work, and you know they're starting to trust you. And so being an executive or a leader, and especially if you're coming from product, is a little bit like social science. Your social science has to be really, really high. Like, I'm sure people don't think about this when they think about me as um, sort of, the person with the highest EQ. But I think that's a a mistake. Like I pay a lot of attention to humans and try to learn humans and how humans function. I think that's the secret power of being a good leader.
1: Yeah, super interesting. So one thing that, you know, typically on on this show, we dive into all of the management topics. And one thing I wanted to do, and I think this is a unique opportunity because you are a product leader. And of course you're a product leader at companies that care a lot about this stuff. we were just talking about this notion of generative AI. It's something that's you know everywhere every you know I think certainly my LinkedIn Twitter feed is full of people talking about all of this stuff. but I'd love to maybe start just you know from from the very beginning to talk about what is it and is it something that's important that everybody, all the listeners on this podcast should listen to even if they're not in technical fields?
0: Yeah, generative AI. I think. Well, the short answer is yes. We are at a point in history where we have created intelligences in the last year that not only can compute, we've got to compute stuff down, but can understand humans and sort of reflect back to humans in a language that we understand that feels human. So basically, I think we've blown past the Turing test, if you know what that is, which is a test of humanity with computing, and so think about this. What can you do with a trillion, four trillion more brains that can relate in society, but think much better and have access to far far vaster knowledge than humans? I think that (laughs) we, we had a huge inflection point in not just technology, not just making software companies, but in the evolution of homo sapiens, I think. Not that we will evolve faster, but I think that Civilization is going to change quite a bit after this. And this is even before I get to what's implications for type form and so on and so forth. So I'm excited and everyone should be a little scared as well, just because we just don't know where this will go. And we don't know, you know, humans are very complicated and actually sometimes very wicked. We don't know what people will do with this stuff. But programmable AI, which is what this is, you know, when you say prompt engineering, you're just programming a computer that can do recursion, that can learn, you know, with the plugins that that sense the world. That's quite a heady idea. I mean, this is the stuff of, you know, some of the craziest science fiction novels.
1: Yeah, and so one of the things, of course, that's super interesting about, you know, everything that's happening here, ChatGPT, I think, one of the fastest company ever to get to 100 million users, The rate at which it's advancing and it's becoming part of the mainstream is so quick. I don't think anyone's ever seen something expand and get into the zeitgeist as fast as some of the tools are today. And then, of course, it's advancing very, very quickly. So I guess one question I have for you is, you know, just from a cultural perspective and like if you're a manager of a technical team, sure, like this is something very relevant to you. Maybe you're paying attention to it. What would you say to people who are sales leaders or marketing leaders or, you know, finance leaders? Is this something that we should all like, should we all be spending an hour a day, maybe more figuring out what this means for our roles and our functions? Or how do you think about that just from a cultural perspective and what people should do?
0: Yeah, I wouldn't focus so much on the fear part of this, which is the whole replacement. You know, this is going to take our jobs and so on and so forth. I don't think that's how history has played out when we have major technology leaps. I think what plays out more, you haven't used an abacus in a long time. You just use like a Casio calculator or use a computer. Like What happens is humans migrate upwards to value-added problems, right? There are lots of things in the world still, trillions of things that are super manual, super not fun to do. I think humans just go to the funner, more complicated, more creative things. And so every role, product management, sales, marketing, will basically use this as a tool to do more complicated, more creative stuff. I think that's what's really going to happen. And so the way we should pay attention to how we use these tools. So is just like anything, you know, in school, they force you to do the math, you use the latest tools. This will just become a tool that everyone has to know. And so, yes, you should spend an hour. At Typeform, we have like a Slack channel where, we sort of community educate each other about what's happening in this space. And it's sort of exciting because we can not only track what's going on, figure out what's relevant to us, but also jam on the most interesting things, the things that are intersect our business a lot, and it's kind of cool. And it, we're sort of teaching each other and everyone can contribute to the same thing. So yes, spend an hour, spend more than an hour, because this is really important, but don't be really afraid about your job per se this is going to give you superpowers, which is the entire point.
1: Yeah. So let's talk about the cultural aspects. I think, you know, part of the things that make it very difficult is we all, you know, humans are also kind of resistant to change. We like doing things. Once we figure out a certain routine and a way of operating in our jobs, we just keep doing the same old. But all of a sudden we have this, like you said, superhuman sort of tool that exists that can change everything. And that just means we have to change the way that we do things and we have to think about it actively. Are there things that you have done with your own teams to like really challenge people to incorporate different ways of thinking or to think about the future of your product or how do you get people to action the change that they're seeing?
0: Yeah, a couple of different thoughts on that. First of all, my biggest tool for getting people to change is to write. Like if you go to Substack or Twitter or whatever, constantly just writing because I feel this compulsion to give back. So because I've seen many inflection points for the last 20 years in technology, I try to use all of that and contextualize and write and say here the possibilities just the kind of conversation we're having today. So even internally in organization I actually write and say here's where this is going, here's how we should think about it. And I don't say that because I'm an oracle, I'm just saying because I have some context and I want to collaborate on that. The other thing is because I'm a leader, I can Be more didactic. So, when we're actually talking about priorities or roadmaps or ways to serve customers better, I can inject my understanding into that conversation. So, it's not just high level thinking about writing, but it's also like, let's make this important to us in a way that is actually tangible, in a way that makes us money, that makes our customers go well. So, I think those are two ways that I inject that into the uh, idea space, uh, either just in my personal life, but also at work. And that's just the start. Typeform specifically, we've built some teams around these technologies. Because we've been, even though it's become super popular, we've been working on it for like a couple of years. And so we feel like given the time, we should start talking about some of these things we've invested in for some time, so that people understand that, understand the level of thinking and depth that we have been bringing to product space with Journey AI for some time, and et cetera, et cetera.
1: Hey, before we move on to the rest of the episode, if you're an engineering leader, whether manager, director, or VP, all engineering leaders know that one-on-one meetings are a powerful tool for team engagement and productivity. However, not all leaders know how to run these meetings effectively. That's why the fellow team just released a comprehensive guide on the art of the one-on-one meeting for engineers. It has over 60 pages of advice from engineering leaders at organizations like Apple, MailChimp, Stripe, GitHub, Intel, and more. We've also included expert-approved templates for you to apply immediately to make your one-on-one meetings that much more effective. So head on over to fellow.app slash resources to access the guide and the exclusive templates right now. We'll also link it in the show notes for you to check out there, but you can go on over to fellow.app slash resources to get the guide and the templates today. And with that said, let's go back to the interview. On the writing concept, so this is trying to make change. So part of it is to put it in writing, put the viewpoint out there so that other people on the team can actually, A, read it, understand that this is serious and like, this is going to be a core part of this company, but also to be able to give you feedback and help you evolve your writing. And how often do you do things like that just from a very tactical standpoint, other product leaders out there who are like, oh, this is pretty cool, this thing Aji does, like, what is the cadence or it's just very ad hoc?
0: It's hard, right? Especially if you're really busy. Product leaders are generally busy. Founders are very busy. And there's always someone to hire to take off some load from off of you. But I think you have to make it a priority if you can. Like you literally have to schedule it if you can. I don't know where to succeed, but I always manage to write in some cadence. It's better when I have my team full and I'm not hiring and I can really focus on the right things. Also, it helps if you enjoy writing. I do. I've written forever and writing is actually a catharsis for me. In fact, when I don't write over a few months, like that, that's a real problem. So I think that helps when people hate writing. And so that's very difficult. So you should use whatever works for you. Video, async video messages, just talking about it. Although I, th- I don't think that scales. You know, there's a reason they say the pen is my than the sword. And, but I think. One way to project leadership power and to gain influence in the world is to write broadly. And you can, it works inside a company and outside a company.
1: Okay. So, I'm, and we're getting very tactical here, but how do you know what to write about? Is it, you know, whatever's on your mind that day, or do you make a list of things you're curious about and then choose one and go deeper? I have
0: three imperatives or things I live by, right? Part of my code. One is wisdom and one is curiosity, and the other one is originality. So I write when I hit the first and the third, when I feel like some thought is dense enough to be considered wisdom and original enough that it'll make people think and open up like new vistas. And so what I do is I have a topic list, both in my personal and professional life, and I collect the things that are original and wise. And then I create a list of those concepts, because usually it's an idea, translate them into like a title and a sketch of what it is. And the key thing at work to do specifically, maybe not for like Substack, is to try not to make it complicated. Don't make it like five pager or anything like that. Like at work, it's okay if it's a half pager or one pager so that you can focus on flow and throughput. If you're publishing for the world, it might be better to take a little bit of time so you can polish it.
1: Yeah, got it. And so as you come up with these things, you populate this list and it almost becomes like a learning experience too because it's a concept, but you know, it's not like you know everything about it. You might have to think about it and research it and you know, by putting it into writing.
0: You might have to go to chat GPT and, and ask it <laughs> questions about it. <laughs> but no, you're right. Because what happens is it's an idea that is a synthesis of things you've known and things you want to know. And then when you write it down, sometimes it forces you to go do a little bit of research, combine that with what you already know and the history of what you know, and then you can put it out in words.
1: Yeah. So, from that perspective, okay, so the writing is a way that you help create change so when you said that you were joining um type one of the things that you also said is you can select to meet with a lot of different people but one of the things that it seemed that you wanted to prioritize was people who were thinking about customers more or were potentially closer to customers and the question that i had for this is because i've heard a lot of product leaders and and just in general this is a thing that i hear often which is every time someone listens to customer calls or reviews customer material, everybody agrees that it's something that's good for you. And when you do it, it gives you all these ideas. But for whatever reason, in a lot of the organizations I've had contact with or talked about, it's one of those things that doesn't happen often enough. And so I'm just curious, like, is there anything that you've witnessed or put into place where you've made this more of a thing that people do to actually spend time with customers or listen to calls or... Like, how do you make this part of the habit of the way people operate?
0: I love that you asked that question. I think that engaging with customers is probably the hardest thing and the most neglected thing that EPD or product organizations, you know, like extended product do. Because we don't really see it this way, but the frictions in front of it are quite large. Right. Let's think about what it means to talk to a customer. If you are in a decent sized company, first of all, you have to generate a list of the customers. And it's not trivial to do that. You have to find the right customer because you're not building for everybody. And then you have to reach out to them and then you have to schedule them. Most of them are too busy. They're not software is in the center of their lives. And then you have to then connect them to the right person in the organization who's asking. And surely you want to do it at scale. My point being that this chain of this workflow is actually pretty difficult. And it's not enough maybe to set up a panel, although that's possible, I did that at Twitter with various panels of different kinds of our customers. Point being that this is very costly, takes a lot of time. So why am I getting this point? Product leaders, first of all, should make customer connection a priority. I will push really, really hard at Twitter but also everywhere I've been to make it a priority. Twitter was difficult because we had millions of customers, and so people just gave up. And that's what happens with big companies. PMs should uh, block off their calendars, basically, and make sure that there's no interruptions for customer time. This is very important. What I try to encourage PMs to do is I give them license to do, on designers, by the way, to do 20% of their time on customers, and that I would defend them if people tried to break that 20% rule. Why do I do that? Because I know that very few people actually spend 20%, but maybe if people spent 10%, then I'm being very successful. The other last thing is you should deploy product operations, if you have that as a role, to make that customer connection easy. At Calendly, we would schedule customer calls on PM calendars automatically. So basically, it's just on your calendar. It's all set up. The customer is contacted, they've agreed, and it's on your calendar. And so as PMs and creative people walk through their week, they just dial into and talk to a customer. And so it becomes more habitual. We even had all the R&D people, including engineering and uh, design, uh, every two weeks go on support calls, those kinds of things. So I guess the point is, it's hard. And if you make it like... A little bit of discipline, oh, you got to do this and just be stern about it. It's not going to work. As a leader, you have to address the actual frictions involved and make it easy for people to do. And that's how you succeed.
1: Got it. So part of it is like, I I really liked how you broke down the task. So this is obviously behavior change and we could have inserted many other types of workflows and other types of roles. but. Break down the tasks, find the friction points, make it super easy. You signified why it might be annoying to do this because of all the hoops you have to jump through. And I really like the mandate of, you know, just kind of giving people a hint. Because most of the time when I've heard this, it's been, you should do customer calls. And it hasn't been like, how many, you know, how much time should I spend? How important is it? But by saying the 20%, it really gives people, you know, that's one day a week. Like that is a lot, like if you actually did do it, but it kind of gives you an idea of, wow, so our our leader says that this is how important something like this is. And is there any way like that you would say, are there other ways that you reinforce the behavior? Like when people are doing more of this and you want to reward it, like is there any sort of loop on the other end?
0: I definitely think that social... Reward mechanisms are good. What I, at minimum, what I try to do is if I notice people have strong customer science and strong, I spend a lot of time with customers, I always celebrate it. Now, in my organization, just because of who I am, people care what I celebrate, right? Because people want to be celebrated in that way. So I celebrate them. I think if you're very thoughtful about it and you're an advanced product system, you should be giving out awards for people who have the strongest customer science and spending the most time with customers. But, you know, ultimately what happens is shows up in accuracy and in picking the right bets. And that is the ultimate, I guess, victory for you as a product leader, but also for the person who built something that was completely on target. I have a, a short answer, so I won't take too much time. It's about giving a shit, right? I think it's about being good at being a good human to people and being a good boss. Making actually being a good human, and a good boss, your actual ambition. It's also being committed to learning and understanding, just like you said at the top, that being a good manager is a little bit like being an athlete. You have to take it seriously. It's not something you fall into. It has to be something that is a goal for you. My goal is to build teams that feel like they're 99 99th percentile. And how does that, what does that look like? People become highly skilled. People work on things that make a lot of sense to them and for their career. People who other people want to poach. That's success for me as a manager.
1: That's a very interesting one. People who other people want to poach. Uh, That's awesome. I I really like that. So you've hired a lot of people. The stuff that you talked about, are these things that you select for? Are good human, good boss, people who give a shit? Like, do you select for this or can you actually nurture this within your org?
0: I feel like that's the bar for me. And that's the bar for my managers. Like my own bar is I feel like You know, it's like uh, Superman, his strength is the red, you know, the, the yellow sun. What makes me, I think, I feel a decent leader and a decent manager is the giving a shit. It is that I have to constantly learn what it means to be great at being a leader. Now, how does that cascade to the people I hire? I look for that when I want people to be managers on my team. Actually, it's weird, like... I don't just promote people to be managers because they're excellent. I promote people to be managers who can take care of the talent that is coming up, if that makes sense. There's a subtle difference, but it's almost like I want to make good shepherds managers. Don't mangle the talent that we've struggled so hard to bring into this organization, encourage them and nurture them. That's the entire job. In terms of what I look for, if you're not a manager, if you're speaking specifically for product, it's really simple. There are five things I think about. Creativity, leadership, acumen, which is just honestly, it doesn't like a personality. It's how to generate followership. I think of communication skills. I think of people who know how to deliver on results, basically relentless. And I think of people who, I guess you could call it customer science. It PM craft. So five things. And those are the things I think about from a product perspective. So the point though, isn't, picking my five. It is that if you're a leader, you have to be opinionated on what that is and you have to integrate it into your product system.
1: Yeah, got it. And so again, just going back to this idea of like, if you really truly care, this isn't performative, you actually really care. And are there ways that you've tried to figure that out? Like, how do you figure that out in an interview that someone actually gives a shit, like you said?
0: People who care will generally telegraph that in the things they did, or how they talk about the things they did. You know, I was talking to a candidate recently who was talking about their way of gaining consensus. And it was quite detailed. It was full of nuance. I thought, I always listen for what I call scar tissue. When I listen, when I hear nuance, that feels like it can't be gotten out of a book. I think about it as scar tissue. And so, For managers, you pick up scar tissue that is about them managing properly because they will go into places and ideas and concepts and experiences that are real and you can tell are real because you've also done the same thing. And so that's what I, I guess if you boil it down is I listen for scar tissue.
1: Yeah, because you can't make this stuff up. You were relentless, you kept digging, you tried to find different ways to do it and you could tell that story.
0: Yeah, you can you can tell authenticity when people tell you certain stories. If I say, here's how I confronted someone who was difficult. They hated it. They hated me. We went for coffee. They hated me just a little less. But, you know, like there are ways like when I tell a story about a real thing that I engage with with as much honesty and forthrightness as possible, you can tell.
1: So. Along the, the same lines, I mean, we, we've talked about this in, in in a few different ways, including, you know, how to get your company to pay more attention to AI. But this change management thing is, I think, really important. But also, you know, the customer discovery calls that we talked about and getting people to talk to customers, you know, I, I'm sure you do an audit, right? You get into a new organization, like, w- what are the programs we're running? How are we doing things? And And you come across the statement, this is the way that we've always done things. So how do you think about this? Because again, like people start doing things and then, you know, it's the way that we've been doing things and we don't really know why we're doing it, but we've always been doing it. How do you treat things that have been going on for a long time as an outsider coming in?
0: This goes into the concept of what I think of as a park system. Every sort of shipyard, every R&D organization has a way to do things always. And sometimes it's written down, and explicit sometimes is implicit. Probably most of the time it's implicit. I believe that good leaders try to make implicit explicit. So even if it's just documenting what exists, is really, really important. Because once you externalize it, people can start to treat it as its own entity that feels malleable, changeable, because it's just a factor of design. It's just that sometimes it's designed by multiple people over a lot of time, and it's a chimera. The easiest way to understand how things work is to ask the people who participate in it how it works, right? So when I come in, I ask the same questions, maybe like five questions to tens, maybe hundreds of people. And what happens, just like any customer discovery exercise, you start to see patterns. be Things people hate, things people love, things that they don't give a shit about, and so on and so forth. So that's one of the things you have to do. In fact, in the book, I don't think I've talked about this, but I'm writing a book on product management Because of the thinking around product systems, by the way, I think of product systems as the product abstraction of innovation. So, you know, developers are in code and then designers and product people are in sort of the design of solutions. But above that is the product system, how all that stuff works and gets together. And so one of the things we've done in the book is to articulate the discrete parts of a product system. The people system, the direction system, and the execution system. And I've produced a literal checklist to help people to make this more explicit. So, and you can prioritize the checklist. You don't have to do every single thing. And the things that are at the top, you can literally say, is this thing a six over 10 for this organization? Or is it a nine over 10 for this organization? So it turns out that with that kind of checklist, you don't have to sort of, it doesn't have to be touchy-feely. You can say, here are the 10 things I should care about. Here's a rating, my rating for some of them. And oh, this stuff needs to get two points up. And then that's a way to start being really intentional about going from, oh, this is always what we've done it to saying people, hey, listen, we're building an operating system. This part that we've done is bad. And here's the score. And here's why I think is the score. And it needs to get better. And people can actually grapple with an amorphous concept in a way that feels performance driven, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, I mean, I really like it. It almost sounds like when you go in, you're you're almost trying to define the model or, or the system by which product gets built at that organization. And like you said, you're you're giving scores, and so you're understanding what should be overweight and underweight, what is doing well currently, and what may need help. Do you draw this out, like once you figure it out?
0: I do, I do, uh, usually by myself. I, I just created the, the checklist literally in the last couple of years. And so I use it myself and say, check, 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 or not checked, what score is this? And then I use that as the language between me and my product ops people on what to focus on and what to build. But I also use a language for the people who resist change because what happens is they are thinking about the implicit system, they're thinking about the explicit system. So, you know, that's the great thing about frameworks. They really help people interact with an idea at a much more specific and granular level. So this product system concept and the checklist is a good externalization that helps everybody.
1: Yeah, yeah, I really like that. And I look forward to reading the book once it comes out. Aji, this has been an awesome conversation. We've talked about so many different things, obviously starting with generative AI, Uh, We talked about making sure your contracts between teams don't become brittle, how great leaders make the implicit explicit. And I love the 20% of time with customers and what actually makes a good operator people who give a shit. So, so many different concepts. Uh, You know, before we, we jump into the last question that we ask all of our guests is, if you were to choose someone that you would love to listen to on this podcast as a guest that you you might recommend that we reach out to that you admire, who would be a good person that we should think about bringing on the show?
0: One of my mentors, Shashir Merota, he's the CEO of Coda. He was a little bit of an informal mentor for me when we were at Microsoft, and he went to become the highest executive at YouTube. And then he came out of that and is working on Coda. He's very smart, very wise too. So yeah. I would love to listen to him on your show.
1: He is awesome. And I've uh, checked out some of the frameworks that he's put together around how to just str- like his own personal operating cadence uh, of how to operate. So yeah, no, that's really cool. Okay. So now on to the question we ask everybody uh, who comes on the show, which is for all the managers and leaders constantly looking to get better at their craft, are there any final tips, tricks, or words of wisdom that you would leave them with?
0: Two. One is get good mentors, right? Especially if you're in the product, or even let's call it the shipyard, right? Meaning multiple, multiple skills, but especially product management, but also be design engineering. Is get good mentors. There's still a little bit of an apprenticeship quotient, especially in product specifically versus say design engineering, and so having good people who work with who you can learn from is really like a big power boost for you. Work for companies that are good at product, right? Because what that means that they've hired really good people and you can learn from, even if it's not just your mentor or your boss, if that makes sense. You'll find good practitioners there, which will level you up. I also think the last thing I will say is, the second thing is, customer science plus creativity is the sum total of being good at product. Customer science is interesting because we often neglect it and we just transact on good ideas. And those are never enough to win a market. But and but creativity, we often, people get so obsessed with with the PM craft, and they forget to be creative. They forget to create experiences or to build things like open AI, an LLM that understands humans. You can't get an LLM that understands humans just by studying customers. You have to take a leap. That is creativity. It took years of discipline to do that. It's the both of, it's a sum of those things. You know, GPT-3 was available for a while, open source, before they decided to create a product that could chat, chat GPT. And then it became popular, if that makes sense. And so that's creativity as well. And that's also understanding customers, if that makes sense. So that's a total of products. Learn both, if possible, to get good at both. One isn't going to do it for you. You need both.
1: That's awesome. That's great advice and a great place to end it. Aji, thanks so much for doing this.
0: Thank you. It was really enjoyable. I enjoyed talking.
1: And that's it for today. Thank you so much for tuning into this episode of the Supermanagers podcast. You can find the show notes and transcript at www.fellow.app slash supermanagers. If you like the content, be sure to rate, review, and subscribe so you can get notified when we post the next episode. And please, tell your friends and fellow managers about it. It'd be awesome if you could help us spread the word about the show. See you next time.